Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. I Dig a Pygmy by Charles Hawtrey and the Deaf Aids. Phase one, in which Doris gets her oats. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan. That's right. It's the Beatlemania episode of Inside the Hive. You've been waiting for it. Here it is. I went looking for resident Beatlemaniacs inside the Hive. There's a lot of them, but I chose two super fans to come on today. I'm very excited to welcome executive editor Miriam Elter. And digital director, Mike Hogan. Welcome, guys. I hope we passed the audition. That's the last time I'm going to try and do a John Lennon funny thing. Yeah, there <laughs> we go. You definitely passed the audition. Well, we'll see at the end, you know. This is exciting. I just finished it last night. Now, just to, uh, just to get a sense of where you guys are at with it, because this is like a real commitment, this, this uh, documentary. Where are you guys in the, in the mix? I finished it last night at 11 o'clock. I was binging for this purpose. It was honestly a lot. I watched like three oh, and right. a half hours of it yesterday, which is an enormous amount. Yeah. I watched four and a half hours yesterday, so I still have the third episode left, but it, it really is a lot of Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> it is so intense. It is really like kind of um, perverse, like how much you're sitting there with them in real time just picking their nose and smoking cigarettes and eating toast out of these little, you know, <laughs> you know what, I'm, what do you call that? There's a little toast stand that they bring in with the tea, which is hilarious to me. It is an extraordinary thing. There's a lot to uh, talk about. Uh, right off the top, let me just say, I'm a pretty much a Beatles nut, of course, but um, I said at the top, the opening lines of the album, Let It Be, which you get to see in the movie. Right. You see John Lennon say that. And then you're like, oh, there it is. And by the way, uh, Ringo Starr is doing jumping jacks while that's happening, which now when I listen to the record, I'm going to be thinking about Ringo doing jumping jacks in the background. But uh, just to uh, fill you in on a little Beatles trivia, the, the deaf aids are as a British term for hearing aids. It's also the nickname the Beatles gave to their amplifiers. I learned uh, by Googling. And Charles Hawtrey was a famous British comic of some time. So, but there's so much coded stuff in the album, you know, in between the interstitial stuff, even the lyrics. It's just, you know, it's all kind of coded stuff that you spend half your life just not knowing what it is or trying to figure out what it is. And that's part of the pleasure of this movie, which is we get to kind of unwrap some of this and find out what was actually going on behind all this mysterious stuff that we've loved for so long. But let's start for uh, before we get into that, Miriam, I want to ask you about this because we were talking off camera about our Beatles fandom and you have a really special story because uh, <laughs> tell me a little bit about, you know, how you came to the Beatles because it's interesting. 
Yeah, uh, the Beatles were basically like the only band that we listened to growing up and was just playing constantly in the car and at home and just played a really huge role in my mom deciding to flee the Soviet Union and uh, come to the U.S. So back in back in the day in the Soviet Union, you know, the Beatles weren't allowed. So people would copy the albums onto like x-rays and pass them around and listen to them surreptitiously. And my mom's English was really good, so she was tasked with translating them into Russian so people would understand the lyrics. Um, this got the attention of the local KGB, and she was called in and asked to inform on her friends, what, why do all these boys have long hair? What are you people doing? And after the second time, she decided to um, flee to the U.S. and raise me on the Beatles and my brother and sister. Incredible. That's just incredible. We've known that the Beatles are sort of like, you know, monolithic symbol of youth liberation, but it's real. It's global. It's like a huge tectonic world historic thing, you know? Now, Mike, I'm going to ask you all of this, like, uh, just to establish where we're coming from here. Okay. What is your favorite Beatles album? You know, I, I saw this in your email and it's such a difficult question to answer. Um, and I guess I think probably Revolver, but maybe Abbey Road. Um, the, the White Album is also really important. The way I got into the Beatles, like the weird Beatles, we, we all grew up hearing all like the, you know, Beatles songs on the radio. But I got into the weird Beatles through the book Helter Skelter by Vincent Bigliosi, where he makes his somewhat dubious argument that, the, you know, Charles Manson was totally inspired by the Beatles to do all of his murders. Uh, and then, I, you know, I bought that CD. I was probably like 11 and went started into the hole and have never entirely come out of it. Um, I think Revolver, though, because it's that fun period where they're they're getting weird, but they are, still have the really poppy, you know, instincts as well. Um, that to me feels like a really fun kind of uh, sweet spot for the Beatles. Yeah. Miriam, in your household growing up, uh, since you were raised on the Beatles, it's like the chapter and verse of your pop cultural sensibility. Like uh, what was the album or was maybe there's just a song or I don't know what, what was sort of like uh, tip of the diamond for the elder family? For the elder family? Huh. I think like at home it was probably the White Album more than more than anything, but my mom also loved like the early pop stuff. So we had literally everything from I Want to Hold Your Hand to, yeah, to Helter Skelter to, to everything in between. Yeah. Well, my favorite is Abbey Road side two, which I think is like maybe the greatest side of any record in history. It just, I can listen to it and I have the same feeling at the end, which is just like, oh my God. I can't believe what a work of art that is, you know. And we get to see in this Peter Jackson film some of these songs from those, you know, that big sequence with Golden Slumbers and all these beautiful, uh, you know, I Want You and all these songs are like they're emerging in this movie and you're getting to see them kind of like as green shoots. Mean, mean Mr. Mustard and Polythene Pam coming into into existence, yeah. I mean, incredible. And in the way they we learn, you know, just through inference, we know they're going to stitch all these together into this, like, unbelievable suite, right? And so everything that we're talking about here is a perfect kind of segue into talking about, you know, what Peter Jackson has done here. He's made this, like, almost eight-hour thing that is almost asinine in how much time it spends without, you know, without talking heads, without a lot of context, you know. It just 
lets you sit with them and absorb it, whether it's boring and tedious and frustrating or whether it's totally miraculous. And you don't know when the miraculous is going to happen because you're just sitting there with them. And then suddenly your understanding of history is exploded by something that you see out of the blue, right? And, you know, I just want to ask you right off the top, you know, what do you make of his decision to make the movie the way he did? To me, it's just the most brilliant reflection of the creative process, because the creative process is exactly what you just described, which is lots of tedium, some fighting, moments of brilliance, and the mythology around so many artists, including the Beatles, is that these songs, you know, Paul wakes up and writes yesterday or whatever, like it's just these songs just like drop into their heads and come into existence. And what having it be so long and so intimate, you see just how much work goes into it, into a line, changing up the rhythm. So I, I don't know. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. And, and what's also incredible is that for all of the workman-like stuff that you witness and the collaboration, there also is that moment where Paul does just like force himself to write a hit song um, in the form of Get Back, just because like they need material and you know he's the first person there and he's got his base you know so so you you see all the different sides of it the this flashes of inspiration the grinding um you know kind of ironing out of stuff and fixing stuff which as an editor is definitely relevant and the personality quirks where you know when it, it's funny cuz somebody on twitter pointed out that john lennon may be strung out on heroin for the first um episode which helped explain to me why he just seems so He's just kind of like not fully there. But when he is fully there, you see how those guys worked so well together. George is very sensitive. They need him, but Paul may or may not be sick of, you know, tending to to George's uh, emotions and starts to become a bit of a domineering jerk. Uh, he's admirably self-aware about this and openly talking about it and how he doesn't like being a, a, a bossy jerk, but he also somebody has to. And then you see that John has the capability of taking it to a silly place that lightens Paul up and lets them actually do the work they need to do, which is just play the song a bunch of times instead of fixating on this moment or that moment. And so, yeah, only only because it's the Beatles would you bother to watch all of this. Um, but because you get to see the whole thing unfold, you see that to make something great just requires an enormous amount of time and a lot of different strategies from flashes of inspiration to misdirecting people to collaborating openly to tricking people into doing what you need them to do. There's, there's all the different things that take place. Totally. Well, I have to say both those, exactly what you're saying, because I, I've been talking to a lot of my friends who were in band or are in bands or were in bands and I was in bands. Yeah. We don't need to talk about that, but I was watching this and just thinking, oh, they're just like every <laughs> yeah. other band except Paul comes in with golden slumbers. I mean, or or get or can come up with get back on the spot. It's just there's all that you see, and also the other thing I think is to your point, they would come up with a song, and they would invariably mock it and do a parody yeah. of it with each other, and it was a it was part of their process. You could kind of see like every time they came up with a song, and you're like, God, it's such an emotional song. It's such a song of you know that we has hit so many buttons in me, but then they're going to sit there and just totally trash it and make their, the best parody of it possible. And But are, they're also doing it to kind of test out the boundaries of the song. Maybe it can be 
slow and sung like Elvis, or maybe it can be sung like the Chipmunks or something. You know what I mean? It ha- they have all these hilarious. So yeah, I love that about it. Um, one thing I want to talk about also is the um, the filmmaker Michael Lindsay Hogg. Um, he's an interesting character in all of this, right? Because the documentary that Peter Jackson has made is really kind of about the making of this documentary. And at the center of it is this sort of, you know, kind of um, uh, beleaguered, uh, but ambitious director who's over time, he stopped, he's at the beginning, he's really just like, come on, we're doing this thing. And by the middle of it, he's realized that he's dealing with like very tricky personality situations here. And he's just sort of like, maybe we can do this. Uh, what do you guys think? And, you know, it's, it, and the thing that I wanted to re- remind you guys of, and I think if you've seen the second episode, Miriam, you'll remember this. Um, when uh, they break to go find out what they're going to do about George, and they've put a hidden mic in the flower arrangement, right? The filmmaker has so that he can get it. What did you guys think of that when you saw it? Because I was like, that was ingenious, completely unethical, and hilarious, but wow, he got this insanely rare conversation out of it. Yeah, I definitely felt incredibly uncomfortable and also incredibly grateful. <laughs> like just to yes. get snippets of that of that conversation was wild. Yeah. And it was beautifully done too, the way that the shots then were going around the vase. The whole film is actually very beautiful itself. The way that they talk about um about the power dynamic in the band is just totally incredible and, and illuminating, right? Where you have John just saying over and over, like John saying to Paul, you know, yeah, you always need to be bossing everybody around. You always want to make all the choices. You want to make all the arrangements. And Paul's like, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then finally he says, but John, you're the boss. You're yeah. always the boss. And you realize that's right. And that's actually why Lennon is able to be laid back because he has the highest status for whatever reason, because he's just dripping with charisma and genius. And, and Paul's like working really hard and John does not have to work hard. Um, yeah. I, you know, somebody pointed out to me that according to Gloria Vanderbilt, Michael Lindsay Hogg is um, Orson Welles' uh, illegitimate son. I don't know if you had uh, caught this or he said that. Yeah, yeah. He, he writes about this in the memoir, which is that it was believed by everyone in his mother's social world, including uh, in Orson Welles' world, that he was the illegitimate son. And he kind of like didn't disabuse people of it and kind of like it becomes a token of his uh, that gets him opens doors for him as he goes along in the world and ends up doing, you know, the rock and roll circus for the Rolling Stones and this movie for the Beatles. Just as an aside, he lives 10 minutes from me and I have I've had lunch at his house and hung with him uh, and to do a story for Vanity Fair, of course, which was our preview of this movie last summer. And, um, you know, he's in a very tricky situation here because he made a documentary and here comes Peter Jackson that says, I'm going to take your footage from probably one of the most important things that you ever did, right? Uh, Or at least very memorable experiences. And I'm going to completely recontextualize it and you're going to be a character in your own movie, right? That's interesting. Like who would have, he would never have expected to be put in a position to be judged in his own movie. Because I, I look on Twitter and some people are like, this guy's a jerk, you know what I mean? Or he's an idiot or whatever, you know? And I don't feel that. I think that I'm sure he was sort of, he's a young man who smokes a cigar and, you know, dresses the way he does. So he is kind of smug and, and funny, like a fop of some, of some kind. But um, 
But he did make some incredible footage, and the cinematographer did fantastic work. I mean, if you, it's so beautiful to look at. Yeah, he's kind of a comical figure, um, but you have to give him credit for standing up to the Beatles over and over again. I mean, you just can't believe the the um, yeah. gall that he has many times. But like, it had to be done, and and yeah. actually, just you know, the fact yeah. that they came up with the the roof thing and sold Paul on it, and then you know, and just had the correct decision to just set the whole thing up even though paul was saying he wasn't sure if he was going to do it and george said i don't want to go up in the roof and it's like not to spoil it but they create the conditions for the roof concert to happen whether the beatles like it or not that's right well and you can also argue that you know he starts off his ask by like let's go to africa and have it in an amphitheater with like you know a, a thousand people streaming in you know oh how about just we go on the roof oh okay we could do that you know yeah um <laughs> yeah you know t- to your the art of what's possible. Always. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it was kind of brilliant. I don't know how strategic it was, but um, let's talk about episode two for a second, because that's where really the things take off in a real way. I mean, the Twickenham thing is like a in the first episode where they're in this kind of like cavernous auditorium, which is sort of unpleasant for them. And then they, you know, George leaves. They bring George back. They're going to go into the basement of Apple Records headquarters, and it's sort of more cozy right? When they're bringing in the tea and the toast, I was like, oh yeah, we can work here, right? Um, you know, uh, but but John shifts. He becomes less heroin seeming, you know, he becomes less remote and he begins to open up and you kind of sense that maybe he made a decision that he was going to like pull himself together finally or in, in some way. And maybe Yoko had something to do with that. She's an interesting figure. She seems to have gotten a lot of reading done in January 1969. <laughs> um, but like there's this great shift. And when he kind of begins to engage, things start to take off, you know, more readily. And then, of course, you, the whole thing is catalyzed when this accidental visitation by Billy Preston, the keyboard player, comes. I found this to be the most magical moment in episode two. Like I just was like, oh, my God. They couldn't bring themselves to, like, they're stuck in all these interpersonal bullshit and they, you know, they're all insecure and they don't know how to communicate. They're bizarrely um, kind of awkward with each other, after, you know, for guys that are so expressive. And then he comes in and it's almost like they all have to work. <laughs> you know, they have to not be as sort of uh, distracted. They can't, they can't keep acting like children. You know, because here comes Billy Preston and he's like, he's a real unbelievable talent and he's got this joy de vie about him and he kind of snaps them all into gear. He catalyzes the whole thing. I found it remarkable. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, it's actually wild about Billy Preston because it is magical. And then there's also something darkly magical, I guess, about it, too. When they say to him, what do you think? Would you like to play with us and basically be, you know, in the Beatles? And you just see on his face this look of like, wait, what? (laughs) I'm going to be in the Beatles? Yeah. 
And, and, you know, you can see, I'm sure he's, he's thinking like, wow, this is quite a big deal. And even George is like, it's a good opportunity for him, you know, but like, (laughs) it's, these are literally the third, fourth and fifth words in his obituary, right? The fifth beetle. And his life did not really go great in the long run. No. And you do have to kind of wonder like, like to what extent this experience affected the trajectory of his entire life. Like that that's what's so interesting, you know, and a friend of mine pointed out like they're they're all biting their nails the entire time like like they've set themselves this crazy goal of like let's record write record a whole album and do it live in 3 weeks, which is insane, but on Bigger than that is the insanity of just being the Beatles. Like, it's just this crushing pressure and and weirdness, uh, you know, and like reading about themselves in the tabloids and trying to have fun with it and make light of it. But also, obviously, it was just like utterly an insane thing to be. And they're the eye of this storm. Uh, and so it, it's it's incredible to see Billy Preston come in. His he is so good. He's he's so incredibly additive to to the music that they're making. But yeah, he also kind of highlights ju- like you start to sort of you're just like oh these four guys, you're getting very comfortable with them. And he is also bringing in like a little bit of the perspective of the outside world. I think that you hit it on the head. It's like almost like he's a avatar for us. You know what I mean? He's coming in and yeah. he's bringing kind of like the outside perspective and their bubble, uh, you know, blows up a little bit or lets some oxygen into it. And it just yeah. really comes to life, you know, and it's an amazing thing to see. And in, in just terms of the broader documentary, it kind of like retroactively gave a lot of value to the first episode. Like it's worth it sitting there waiting for this moment because that moment becomes so much more powerful when you see what it is it really did. You know, it's like night and day in a way, and it really glued all these songs together because when you hear Get Back with the keyboards, you're like, oh, yeah, that's what that needed, right? That was perfect, right? Um, Tell me, Miriam, some of like the, you know, this movie is like just sprinkled with all kinds of beautiful, magical little things that you love and funny things and weird things. What were some of your highlights that you kind of uh, that stuck with you? One highlight is definitely, um, you know, they've they've been practicing all day. They go home and then they come in back into the to the cavernous cave the next day. And George Harrison is like, "You want to hear a song I wrote last night?" And then it's just "I Me Mine," you know. Yeah. He just as if yeah. it's no little <laughs> no no big thing. Um, yeah. That that was really huge for me. I thought another part that was interesting was when they're like discussing the death of their uh, former manager, you know, and they yeah. like were speaking about it so respectfully. It was just it was you saw them in a different way where they're like it's not been the same since Mr. Preston passed away, and you can kind yeah. of then see them as like younger versions of themselves. I like those kinds of uh, intimate moments, and then because um, "Don't Let Me Down" is my favorite Beatles song of. Mm-hmm. all time just absolutely any iteration of them uh creating that song was like pure magic and just to hear how how it was in the beginning um and yeah. how different it was than what it became was amazing yeah 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 I, I love lennon just complaining all the time about how how difficult it is to sing and how hard he, he's like constantly complaining about how hard it is to do everything which is as yeah. a person who's terrible at guitar playing i'm just like thank god yeah you know yeah. we're that, not alone th- 
<laughs> that part was so interesting too, because like Paul McCartney, who you know I have feelings about, feelings about all of them, is so concerned. He's like, that just sounds cheesy. Don't make it cheesy. And to me, like Paul McCartney can be the king of cheesy songs, and Don't Let Me Down is the opposite of a cheesy song. So it's interesting to see mm-hmm. like where his concerns also were, that just didn't align yeah. with what I would have been concerned with. But you know, I'm not in the Beatles for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> well, that. What you said about Brian Epstein that in his death is that that was an amazing scene because Paul says, you know, we lost our daddy figure, right? We had somebody who was telling us to go places to do things, and now suddenly, and later on he talks about that again, and he says, well, no, we don't need, you know, I, even though he's gone, we can do this, right? But a lot of it had to do with figuring out the John Paul relationship, like you know, they Paul wants John to be the leader, John's kind of reluctant to deal with it because he's got Yoko and he's off on other things and he may be you know, hooked on heroin. We don't know what his deal is, but when he finally gets John to play ball with him, uh, that's also a big and turning point. Um, you know, the thing that I loved about this was when now I'm going to listen to the record, the Let It Be album, and when I hear certain songs, I'm going to know what was going on around them. And for instance, when they do The Long and Winding Road and they say, this is the take, right? Well, Linda and Mary are lying on the floor, just sort of lying there, you know, just hanging out. And George Martin's just sort of leaning against the wall, with his hand on his hips, with those high water pants. And you're like, this is the scene, right? This is the scene of this song. And when I hear that song, I'm never going to not be able to imagine that wonderful kind of communal bubble that they're in in that moment. And there's something so beautiful. And Miriam, I think that you will come to see this when you start the third episode. But like as the family comes in and and it becomes as things are really starting to gel, the vibe of the place starts to really warm they, and they start to really reconnect with each other. And you can tell that the Beatles are being glued back together here in a way that this is my, what they must have been like before the White Album, right? before uh, the White Album kind of sent them off in these different directions. And I I was talking to a friend of mine who's like a Beatlesologist kind of guy, and he said, you know, there's this little scene where John Lennon says, um, or they're talking about how John Lennon, his method was like one and done. Let's just do it and and boom, record it and be done with it. You know, he was not a guy who wanted to belabor a song. And in the old days, I guess, when John and Paul had their real spark going on, it didn't take forever to make a song gel. They just were like, bam, 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 boom, record it, bye, you know? And now they're having to kind of refine that. And that's what this movie is showing you is they're trying to refine that. And by the third episode, they have refound it, right? They have found that whatever that spark is between, and it really is about the engine of Paul and John, which is exactly why George is sensing, I need to take all my songs and go make a solo record because this is not going to happening for me, you know? Let's talk it's about so George. amazing that he's yeah. Well, it's so amazing that he's self-aware enough to just be like, I've got enough for my allotment of the next 20 Beatles albums. Like, yeah. you know, we, we, I've always thought about it that way, but it's insane that George was just like, yeah, I get one to two per album. Like, yeah. that's my that's my <laughs> allotment, literally. Yeah, amazing. amazing. Um, well, before we go to George, who is, I, I think, in some ways, the most interesting person in it, Peter Jackson, I mean, this is the dude who made The Lord of the Rings. And I, I was thinking about it and I thought, this is a quest movie and they need to get back to what they had before. 
you know, like that's that's what this that's what this whole thing is about. And and you know, in many ways, that's why it deserves the, roughly the playing time of um, the Lord of the Rings. Uh, I don't know. I, ju- I just think like that's kind of what we're watching. Is, is well, yeah, that's the title for... of it. And in a way, that's yeah. even the song. I mean, the song is Get Back. You know, it's all sort of there. Yeah. Right. And the concept for the album and the TV show initially was let's play live again. Let's recapture our spark after we become the studio band. Right. So it's all there on the surface. But getting there was going to be harder than just saying, let's snap our fingers and make it happen. Right. So they do set them up for this challenge, which is kind of funny because. It's almost the premise for a reality TV show, right? Which is basically mm-hmm. what this is. It's like a 1969 reality TV show yeah. about like a band that tries to refine their own creative thing, you know? So George, let me talk about George a second. First of all, on the one hand, I Me Mine is a great song, but the fact that they play it All Things Must Pass and they were like, yeah, no. Yeah, we don't need that. Well, we won't <laughs> do that one. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> okay. Uh, but the other thing is that George is a wet rag. I'm sorry. He's a bit of a wet rag. I mean, what up with that guy? He's just kind of like, uh, oh, God, dreary, you know, oh, with I his Harry Christian. I don't think Christ- so. Okay, no, good. I Let's disagree. talk about it. I think, you know, <laughs> I think that he's kind of like the quiet genius who doesn't have the charm or the personality of a John or a Paul does do the hard work, does have the flashes of inspiration, pushes them into like interesting dark places musically. Um, and is just like a serious dude who doesn't, who maybe doesn't want to joke around all the time. Like you get happy when you see him smile because it's a rare thing yeah. and that's yeah, okay. Yeah. But I don't know. I think, I think he's got some quiet genius about him. He's, he's so soulful and sensitive that I, I relate to Paul, unfortunately, I wish I didn't. But like looking over there being like, oh, God, here we go again. And, and it's such a fascinating conversation when they talk about when they talk about the Maharishi and Paul's like, yeah, I've got the footage and I've been watching it. And like, I just wish we had been ourselves instead, because Paul yeah. is like Western man, you know, like for yeah. George is doing all these like, you know, within you, without you, Eastern stuff. And Paul literally is writing a song about Mary, the Virgin Mary coming to him, you know? (laughs) And so Paul's just like, why didn't I just bring my normal self? I could have been acting like I was here in London. And then John is just like making fun of the Maharishi and making fun of himself and saying, you know, uh, that wonderful thing where George goes, wouldn't it be nice if, and John goes, if we had all his money? Yeah, that would be nice. But then, but then George, when he comes in very passionately and says, this is so ridiculous saying you're a real self. The whole point is that you don't have a self. And yeah. he's both right and kind of like a pain in the neck. But yeah. it is hard to watch them, especially Paul, just like ignore him and 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 uh, yeah. take him for granted. And you see John go between being like basically an inveterate put down artist and trying to bring trying to pay attention. You know, let's play some of George's songs. Like, I like this one. I like this one. And Paul is so busy competing for John's attention that he just, it's actually, it's tough to watch. It's tough to watch. I found that moment you're talking about tense with the, about the Maharishi and looking back about the film, because exactly that scene where he's like, why couldn't we have been, you know, yourself is yourself. You could see that they had gone off. They saw the whole thing as a joke, but George can't quite see the whole thing. He's still there in a way. You know what I mean? He's got the Hare Krishnas. He's, he can't comically dismiss that whole experience the way they can. I think that he invited them to something that he thought was the most important thing in the world. 
And it was quite an imposition and they went along with it. And at the end of it, they probably thought like, what the hell was that? You know, like we're trying to be your friend and be supportive, but that was ridiculous. You took us to like the middle of nowhere with like a crazy con artist and George just never saw it that way, you know? So it is super interesting. Yeah. He looks so cool smoking. I have to remind myself that he died of lung cancer. Oh my God. I mean, (laughs) I've never seen so many cigarettes. I've just never seen so many cigarettes outside of like, you know, a New York City bar in the 1990s. But like it was uh, really kind of remarkable. And, you know, some of the close ups of the teeth were a little bit uh, unpleasant. Um, you know, the, that, the combination of endless tea and cigarettes is not a great dental hygiene situation. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. We haven't talked yet about um, Ringo. I have to say my just top line impression on Ringo is that he is like a beautiful man. I, I think he's like a really beautiful man. I mean, I, I you know, you think of him as the joke. He's the clown and he's always been cast that way. But there's something that was just so grounding about him, and that's his role, right, as the drummer anyway. But he really was – there's something um, – every time he comes on the screen, I felt assured – by him. I don't know. It's just like a weird vibe. Even, you know, when you even have Linda saying, I feel the most comfortable around Ringo, like it was nice to have that confirmation that um, the impression seems right. I don't know. He comes across as a total sweetheart. I really respected when he fell asleep during that like group interview and like stayed asleep. He's just like, he's in the same role as he's put in the same role as George Harrison, but he's chill with it. I thought that moment between George and Ringo was really sweet too. And Ringo's like at the piano doing Octopus's Garden and they just come over and kind of start doing this cute little song. You know, I'm happy they had each other at least. Yeah, it was, it's really great. And he's sweet with the children, you know, with when Mary comes in, Mary McCartney, that's Mary McCartney, right? Um, But also, you you also realize that, like, you have an intense leader in Paul and an intense non-leader in George, and you have a silly leader in John and a silly non-leader in Ringo, and you really needed the two silly guys. Yeah. Like, without them, this thing would not have worked. But they both, in their own ways, could lighten the mood and get everybody, like, to remember that it's supposed to be a rock and roll band that has fun, you know? Yeah, yeah. He's a great drummer, too, man. Uh, I mean— He uh, is! I hate when people <laughs> say he's not a good drummer. What What yeah. are you listening to? Yeah. I mean, just even the drums, just the fills on Get Back are just, like, so beautifully— they're so economical and perfect, and there's some simplicity to them that makes them just— perfect and right. And he stitches it all together. I mean, he stitches it together. And so 
he's swinging too. I mean, when, you know, I think I can tell that Billy Preston, who is an incredible, you know, keyboard player, just appreciated Ringo's swing. Like he could really, you know, lay it down. Miriam, there's another moment in the, I think it's the third episode where McCartney's daughter, Heather, right? Comes yeah. and is, uh, and is like just going nuts all around the studio. It's really fun. She's just like, yeah causing lots of trouble and she's hitting but you know they have that that screen in front of the drum so you can't see below Ringo's neck and they're doing I can't remember which song and she's hitting the hi-hat the entire time and afterwards McCartney stops and says now listen Ringo don't hit the hi-hat like that so hard throughout (laughs) the whole song you know just like much lighter and Ringo just sits there looking at him it's so good yeah so hilarious (laughs) it was like a really perfect encapsulation yeah, yeah. Um, beyond the band themselves, we have all these hangers on in the movie, right? Or the people that are their management, right? You got George Martin, who looks like he's from another era completely. Um, but then you have Glenn Johns, the engineer, who is like the god of fashion. I mean, this guy, every scene that he's in, okay, you're like, my God, where did he get these clothes? He looks so great. And he's a an incredibly sensible person in the movie, which is an interesting thing. I don't know if you, how much you guys have been paying attention to the Glenn John and the th- his input, but there's an amazing scene in the third episode where John Lennon is effusive about having met Alan Klein, right, who's going to be the manager to come, sort of. <laughs> and he's saying, oh, I was up with him till two in the morning. He's talking to George. And he's like, he's so great. You know, he's so smart. I just really got this guy. He knows me. He knows us, he says. He knows me as much as you know me, you know, which is a weird thing to say to George. And then, uh, but then Glenn pipes in. He's like, well, you know, whenever you say something that he doesn't agree with, he changes the subject. You ever notice that? And he's like, Glenn sort of saw that Alan Klein was being a little manipulative, you know, and John did not see it. And what's great about this scene in the, is it is the, the, it's the foreshadowing of what is going to happen to this band. For those Beatlesologists who may not be aware, there's going to be kind of a, a lawyer war in the future here between Paul's idea of who the manager should be, which, who is Linda Eastman's father, John Eastman, and Alan Klein, who... John Lennon wants to be their manager, and there's going to be a big battle royale about that, and it's going to break up the Beatles. And so you see it's just this little—it's just dropped in like a little dark drop in the third episode. And it kind of um, is—it's fascinating for two reasons. One is that when the Let It Be movie came out later, the Beatles had broken up by the time the original movie came out. And the band was breaking up. Uh, because of this battle over money and management and direction and everything else. But it gave people the impression, because the movie came out and the battle was going on at the same time, that what happened during the Let It Be sessions had been fractious. And that's what this movie is sort of finally contextualizing, is that it wasn't, Alan Klein didn't even enter the picture until they were almost done with the album. Right, it was two days before they go on the roof that Alan Klein even enters the picture, and so this is kind of like for the Beatles historians, you know, people who have been writing about this for years with the same kind of framework that Let It Be was the sort of dissolution, you know, the beginning of the end. It's not exactly like that. Um, so I'm just 
drawing that out for you guys because it's a fascinating Beatles nerd uh, kind of revelation. Um, I reread your story this morning, Joe, about about this film with uh, you know what Peter Jackson was saying, how he like he wouldn't have made it if it had been that like fractious, sad. Beatles breakup film and that he was surprised to find it so happy. And I also, you know, I, you just, you started and I think just have a smile on your face from the first minute. And it's so, you know, despite the difficulties, it really is so, it's just amazing and surprising to see the, the happy, the happy times between them. It's just not what you would expect from that time at all. Totally. Totally. Uh, yeah. I mean, Peter Jackson says when he was watching and he says, I was just laughing and laughing and laughing because you know, probably partly out of just the joy of the, of how revelatory it was to see what actually was happening, uh, and also because it was funny. I mean, when John is unbelievably funny in this in the second episode, I was just laughing at some of the how kooky he is and just how off the cuff he is. I mean, he just is like a stream of consciousness with wacky stuff. I mean, we know that from just that first line that I spoke at the beginning of the you know quoted the I dig a pygmy by Charles. I mean, who would think of such a thing? But like, it gives you a sense of all these reference points they all had together and the kind of like inside jokes that they were all kind of aware of and mocking things they had all grown up with, right? And it gives you a sense of the generational divide, but it's very British, right? It's they were experiencing the generational divide in the United Kingdom. And so we don't, as Americans, we were listening to these Beatles the let it be stuff, and not really even knowing what it was. We're trying to decode it. But they all had it. And again, I've made this point, but it's amazing to see how Lenin is really, I don't know, he's like just channeling all this bizarre stuff all the time, you know. I would would say, though, that there is a cloud of doom there all the same. And I mean, George does theoretically quit. And whether it's an attention getting exercise or not, um, like there's a moment when I love Lennon just being like, well, we'll just get clapped in then. Yeah. Um, yeah. which oh does show how fed up they were with one another. Um, yeah. and there's actually the really interesting moment where they're talking about whether they're going to do the roof concert. I, and I think Paul says to Glenn, he says, you know, the original idea here was we were going to record the last album and Glenn goes, the last album. And he goes, yeah. And then he realizes he means the previous album, yeah. but like it was so hanging in the air Right. To just be like, this might be our last album, you know, right. like Mr. Epstein is dead. We can just about barely stand to be in a room together sometimes. Other times yeah. we're having a lot of fun. And it's super interesting, which I hadn't realized until I was doing more reading, that they ended up screwing over both Glenn Johns and um, and George uh, Martin. Yeah. And when they when they hired uh, Phil Spector to produce the album right and then they they removed both of their credits and then george martin went on to say um i produced it inspector overproduced it um, but anyway so <laughs> that's interesting well and i know it was lennon who was really dissatisfied with the way it sounded um yeah which um i i've heard the let it be naked and it's great they're both great i mean they're just different you know, but these guys, maybe it was just another sign that they were dissatisfied generally. Right. Um, but, you know, learning as we do, uh, when you get to the rooftop scene, you realize how many of these songs on the record are from the roof or from the live. Yeah. And I was listening to it on the record this morning. I was, wow, you never would have guessed that this was out in the open air, you know, 
with people honking down on the streets and cops making their way up the foyer, you know, I mean, just like this crazy scene, you know, which I love thinking about now. Like I said, just like this idea that there was just like, you know, Keystone cop situation going on all around these songs. Here's a question I have for you, which is I, I was thinking about this throughout. I was like, after eight hours of this, am I going to be like fully sated as a Beatles fan and really need to not think about the Beatles for a long time? Or am I like even more of a Beatles fan than I ever was. <laughs> and I have to say, after watching it all eight hours last night, the first thing I did when I got up this morning is go to my Beatles records and just start listening to them maniacally, right? So I, I kind of like am shocked that even after eight hours, I still want more, which is, I don't know what even what to say about that. <laughs> I did the same thing, Joe. Like I listened to them for like two, you know, on my two hour long morning walk this morning. But I personally, like, I think it's great for people who, um, you know, are obsessed with the Beatles. But the thing that makes me also really excited about this is I feel like there was a moment culturally like five or six years ago where people were like, you know, the Beatles were overrated. And like that was like the dominant kind of strain among the kids. Um, and it's just really nice to like revel in them unironically and fully and have this for like a potentially new generation of Beatles fans. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they keep making these Beatles fans. I can tell you that just because I have teenage daughters who do everything in their power to resist liking anything <laughs> that I would present to them. I mean, they really put up a good show, you know, but they can't resist the Beatles. There are certain Beatles songs that come on and you see them. I look in the rearview mirror of my car as I'm driving around and I see those little lips, mouths, lip syncing it. You know, they like these songs. They good. can't help it. You know, they can't help good. it because it's just so good. So Peter Jackson has done uh, a service to us all. And I'm sure that Paul McCartney feels that way. Because I definitely feel like the upshot of the thing is that Paul McCartney comes out as looking like, you know, the, a, a big part of the engine that was making this band tick. Um, you know, I interviewed him ages ago for my book. And one of the things he talked about was how when John Lennon was killed in 1980, that afterwards he became kind of this martyr, this James Dean character, and Rolling Stone magazine and other kinds of forces in the world and Yoko kind of conspired in his mind to make John like kind of the only Beatle that mattered, the most important Beatle, right? And, and there was a sense for years growing up that John Lennon was the, he was the Jesus of the Beatles, right? And Paul, having an ego and and, and a lot of talent sort of resented being seen that way. And he, I remember him telling me, he's like, you know, all I did was book the studio. That's what, that's what it became. And, you know, and I do think that this movie, um, kind of, uh, it definitely kind of reorients people towards what a huge force he was in the, in the band. I mean, it's not like I did, I always believed he was anyway, but you know, He's had a huge renaissance in the last few years, you must admit, and he's done a lot of press and he's been out there and this movie's a, I mean, he had to green light this and let all this stuff out. And, and, you know, as we said in the, in the Peter Jackson story we published last summer, Jackson watched all this uh, footage and went to Paul McCartney and McCart Paul McCartney was nervous, right? Like, oh my God, what did you find? What's it, what's it look like? Because they all believed in their minds that it was negative, that it did look bad. And he's like, no, it's funny and it's great. And oh, by the by, you look like pretty great. You know, I mean, you coming in, 
with all these amazing songs. I mean, can you believe the songs this guy's just coming in with? Like, oh, here, how about this one? And it's, you know, name your song. It's like you can't believe he, he, he seemed to bring in the most potent material, at least for the Let It Be record. Oh, yeah. I mean, Lennon is on partial autopilot for a good portion of this time, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's true. Growing up, we always thought Paul was sort of like a dork, you know? Paul was yeah. like the corny one, like you said, Miriam. And even though he did all these great songs, he also did... I mean, I really do... Actually, my feeling about The Long and Winding Road is that everyone in the studio was as bored as I am hearing it. I was like, yeah, I, I would be lying on the ground waiting for it to end, too. Um, I'm so but- happy you said that. I can't stand <laughs> that oh, song. I'm sorry. It is I'm really so happy you one said of the worst that. songs ever. I'm going against you both Thank on you. that. That is just wrong headed. But I <laughs> but go ahead with your thing. But he he was brilliant. I think I don't think I understood at least at this phase how much of the heavy lifting and fast running he was doing, and, and, and you know to what extent he was kind of not only keeping John engaged but also um being a perfectionist that in in some ways is is really helpful and it's also crazy that he was 27 years old because he just you know it doesn't seem like a person in their 20s um and so uh, even though his perfectionism is sometimes i think counterproductive and that's when you see lennon kind of like get him out of it he, you know, you needed somebody there to do quality control and to insist that everything be right and good. And and also I've seen some of that Rick Rubin documentary that he did on Hulu, and it's quite wonderful as well. I mean, I, I do, I agree with you. He's having a renaissance. It's well-deserved. There was part, but you know this, Joe, you can resolve this conspiracy fear that I have. He didn't sculpt this thing to make himself look really good. No, Paul, I don't You're shaking no. your head for no, no, listeners at home. Joe is saying no. No, no way. I mean, because I'm looking on, you know, uh, Twitter and elsewhere at the responses to it. And a lot of people think he looks like an asshole because he's controlling, right? He's trying to control George and he's and he's a jerk to George. I mean, let's be honest. And yeah. I felt for George as a person who has played music before because George says, I want to learn my part. You know, I'm not into improvising. You know, I want to learn the part so that I can feel comfortable in the thing. And, and the other guys are like, oh, come on, George, you know. Uh, you know, they're, they're in, you know, because Paul, he'll just do anything, right? Uh, and it may be just a matter of where their talents are emphasized. And in that way, you know, Paul can just swing with it. But do you have any thoughts, Miriam? I came away with like more respect for Paul and probably for his, for his uh, work ethic more than anything. I mean, I don't know if I think of it as a revival. I feel like he had, you know, a bad tabloid moment after Linda died and but I can't, I, I, I don't know that I think ambiently, like we grew up thinking that he like didn't matter to the Beatles, you know, I don't know. Um, so I wouldn't say like substantively it changed any kind of opinion that I had, but like for his work ethic, it really was amazing to see just how many times, yeah, he was like, okay, we just need to sit down and do this. It may just be the difference between John Lennon died and Paul McCartney made Wonderful Christmas Time. Right. So you're just, you know, it's like, it's just, wow. you know, there's a song I do like. So I love it too. I, that. Mean, I love it too. In fact, yesterday, though, I saw a hilarious meme that just said, you know, your opinion of it depends on whether you ever worked in retail uh, because it would be dead. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it's the long tail of history, 
right? And we're getting to watch it with the Beatles, like from the kind of thermonuclear event of the 60s to the long tail of like people parsing it for just decades, you know, how many freaking books have been written about these guys over and over and over again, everybody picking, 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 you know, and you've got his, you know, the, the current historian writing about the Beatles has got, you know, his first book just goes up to when they're in like Hamburg, practically, you know, I mean, just they haven't even gotten to like, you know, America yet. The, the book's getting, you know, the next one will get them there. It's just like, this is how totemic these things are, right? Um, I mean, it's utterly way, insane. If Paul, if Paul thinks that people didn't give him credit or didn't think he was an important musician, that is totally he, insane. But then also like Mick Jagger just came out two weeks ago, was it? And said, you know, people like to compare the Rolling Stones and the Beatles, but you may not notice we became a great touring band and toured for, it's like, yeah, we know Mick, we're all aware that you're a successful musician. Yeah, like yeah. this is not They're a, insecure. They're artists. I mean, yeah. And by the way, are. Paul, Paul said the Rolling Stones were, were just like a blues band. Right. Um, yes. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> still taking shots. So, but that's the <laughs> hilarious thing about this is that, you know, these artists, we think that their egos must be like uh, gold plated and there's no, nothing can penetrate them, but they are highly penetratable. You know, these are very vulnerable, insecure people, which is why they're so, voraciously creative and, you know, ambitious because, you know, at the heart of it is like, please like me. Right. And that's definitely Paul. Yeah. He's the pleaser, right? He wants to please. He wants you to be pleased. Right. That's both his uh, Achilles heel and what's great about him. I mean, so and and on that front, just, this is a little litmus test about Paul, you know, let's see a show of verbal hands, uh, you know, wings. Do we go for wings? See, oh, Miriam, I wow, only okay. know, I only know the hits. I never listened to them. Uh, I used, yeah, I used to really be not into Wings, and then actually, like, lately, I can, I can vibe with, with Wings more than, uh, than I used to. But I had, like, an instinctual dislike for them when I was younger. Yeah, okay, so I'm the softy here. This has been made perfectly clear, because Long Winding Road, I'll go there. And I liked the fact that he mentioned in the documentary that it was supposed to have a Ray Charles vibe to it because Ray Charles's cover of it is my favorite version of it. I mean, it's a he Ray Charles does a great version of it. So maybe that could shift your ideas about it. But I also, as long as I'm talking on a microphone and everybody's going to hear this, I'll declare this. But Ram, the second Paul McCartney solo record, is my personal favorite post Beatles album by any of the Beatles. So I'm laying it out there. You can throw tomatoes at me or whatever you want to do, but that's just where I stand. Do you guys have any opinions about that? Post-Beatles albums? Plastic Ono Band. It's a powerful one. It's a big one. But it's so... You can't listen to that on all occasions. That is a very... That's a yeah. very, it's a pretty dreary record. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, maybe it's just like, I'm not in the mood as often for a Plastic Ono moment. Yeah, it's intense. It's very intense. I think you, that's a record you listen to alone, I, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe crying. Can we talk about Yoko Ono or should we not talk I about I was Yoko just ono? about to say, I think that we yeah. should, we got to talk about Yoko. Let's talk about Yoko. Because <laughs> I think she's one of the great, she's a great artist. I think she's a great artist. I do. And I found it kind of a little bit unnerving having to sit there and watch her, you know, as an accoutrement to John or even just an emotional kind of like prop for him, you know, like to prop him up. 
because uh, she doesn't she have something better to do than sit there for hours and well, hours a- and hours. Yeah. It was it was truly confusing. Like I thought that maybe okay, this will shed some light on uh, you know really uh, what huge tension she brought into it. But like those early scenes, especially in the first episode of you know the band is just sitting there, the four of them, and then like she's there in a chair right next to John. I just was like screaming at my TV, like why? Just move your chair away. What are you doing there? Yeah. Um, It is really uncomfortable. It's also uncomfortable. Like, it's obvious there's tension. Paul talks about it. Linda talks about it, about this terrible first meeting with with George after he leaves the band. But um, they also, like, nobody acknowledges that she's there. Everybody's relationship with her, um, I just found incredibly odd. Like, the only one you see talking to her is Linda, you know, for a little bit, I guess, in the second Mm -hmm. second episode. But I don't know. Did, was it revelatory yeah. for you guys at all, seeing her like that? It was kind of anti-revelatory for me, but I, I mm. mean, I, I kept wondering, like, um, does he need her there? And I'm very curious what's going on behind the scenes with them, you know, because well, we I have... I also wondered if they were, yeah, I, I wondered if they were cutting stuff out in some way, and she's a producer on it, but... Um, Paul does seem to get at what they had in mind. I mean, I have to try to remember, like, it's 1969, so people had some really dippy ideas and were trying stuff out that turned out to be really bad experiments. And it sounds like they were doing an experiment to be together at all times. That's what Mm -hmm. Paul's referring to. And so he's kind of like, hey, if that's what they want to do, that's fine. But he also references, like, the band breaking up over her, which hasn't come up, but it made me think that that was actually like, whether it's when the cameras weren't rolling or stuff that we don't see, that 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 was actually a a cause of the tensions with George separate from his creative frustrations or whatever. Right, right. I want to just take something back here. There was a revelatory moment with Yoko. It was when George left and they all start having the freak out jam with Yoko. And she's doing the screaming and the ululating, and they're just going nuts, and they all just go into this chaotic frenzy, right? And you realize, oh, she is helping them. She's helping them kind of like work through all of these unarticulated feelings they have about what's happening, you know? And I kind of love those freak jams. They're kind of hilarious and great. But later on, they have another one in which McCartney's daughter takes over the mic yeah, Heather, she starts screaming like Yoko, too. And Yoko's sort mm-hmm. of like with her. And you kind of love that. And you're like, oh, this is great. Look, at this is a wonderful moment. So she does have these little mo- punctuations in there where I feel like she is doing something. She's adding something to the chemistry. And it's partly well, th- familial. There's, there's, there's two other moments that stand out that are kind of nice. Where One is when Paul is having another uh, insecurity spiral. And everybody's saying, no, 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 that was good. Like, it was good. And she chimes in, no, it was really good. And she, because she's so silent all the time, it's actually yeah. incredibly meaningful for Yoko to chime in and be encouraging. Because um, you get the sense she doesn't bullshit people or right. really d- interact with people much at all. Yeah. And then the other one is um, when they're playing, they're really trying to get serious and record. And she kisses John in the middle of the song. You just think, oh, my God, like, what is with these two? She can't not kiss him in the middle of the song. And then as soon as they stop, John says, Yoko just found out her divorce went through. I'm free. (laughs) And you're like, that's pretty cool, actually. You know, that's (laughs) that's kind of great. 
So uh, it's it's super interesting that dynamic, but it 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 I feel like it continually and maybe this was her goal sets expectations and then undercuts them, and you're never really sure what to think. It's awfully unusual, but yeah, yeah I mean it was an unusual situation. I will say that the the moments where the camera lingers on her, she's just incredibly beautiful. I mean, she's just like the fashion and just her expression. She just she's a beautiful woman in that period. I mean, and, you know, I liked it when she was painting. There's a moment where she does a little doing some Japanese figures on the on, on the uh, wall. I liked I wished that she had been making art the entire time, you know, uh, but she's really reading the gossips. Uh, and reading the like uh, fan <laughs> magazines and stuff, which is just so strange. I mean, it's it is and it isn't. I mean, what you learn from John Lennon, you know, ends up doing this mammoth interview with Jan Wenner in Rolling Stone, and is published in 1971. It was a huge interview, and Yoko was by John Lennon's side the entire time, and kind of chiming in and helping him shape uh, his. Um, responses to the questions, and he was talking about the Beatles breakup, and and one of the things that she says is that um, that John Lennon uh, is more powerful without the Beatles. If you think about that, in that in the background, this is what is going on in her mind that he is uh, being held back in some way by by this scenario. It's fascinating to think about because obviously they were going off in a different direction. And that's part of the mix, right? So um, in any event, what's uh, she's, I think, definitely getting reoriented in history from this film. You know, people are looking at this film and feeling like, oh, she wasn't the thing that was causing uh, the rift, you know. Uh, it's George or it's this or it's that. So, But what, I think what we learned from watching eight hours of this is that it's not really not any one person. It's like a big Shakespearean yeah. story, right? So, yeah. Um, and it's one that I am going to watch again. I'm actually going to watch this entire thing again. I can imagine just idling around watching this for like months on end, just dipping in and out watching it because it's so fun. You'll come out like with long hair and a big bushy beard and like a bright totally. green sweater. <laughs> well, I'm definitely questioning like how often do I really need to be washing my hair? Um, right. Oh, the day the day Lennon washes his hair and has yeah. a giant razor burn yeah. on his neck and his yes. hair is like freshly but not conditioned is like, whoa, I guess we took a shower today, John. Wow. Yeah, it's really kind of wonderful. Um, there's a lot there's a lot to observe in this film. And uh, I must say, um, I uh, can't think of two cooler people to have talked about this film with. Obviously, we could go on for another hour if we really wanted to. And, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe there'll be a part two up the road. But um, thank you, Miriam Elder and Mike Hogan, for coming on to Inside the Hive, Beatlemania edition. And uh, let's just wait for the, you know, eight-hour Abbey Road film, and that'll be great, too. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. That's our episode this week. I'd like to thank Miriam Elder and Mike Hogan for coming on the program. That was a ton of fun. Thanks to producer Brett Fuchs. Thanks to the people at Cadence 13 who make this podcast possible. Please support our sponsors the way they support this podcast. Come back next week. We've got something special for you.
America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. From P-